0: Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of First Peter, First Peter chapter 4. And as you're doing so, I just want to tell you how great it is to be with you this morning. I can't thank you enough on behalf of my family for your prayers during our time of sickness. And I would ask that you be in prayer for Lisa's family. She's attending a funeral today. Um, at the loss of her grandmother in St. Louis, and that would be very much appreciated. Um, I know the family would appreciate that greatly. This morning we will be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. You can also find this um, on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's passage. We're going to find something today from our text that's common toward the end of New Testament letters. Uh, Paul actually is notorious for this. Uh, Reading through any of his letters, you really find this, especially in that last chapter, where you can almost feel the, the page getting short. You can almost see it that they're running out of space, and they're like, I've got so much left to tell you, Um, And I've got to fit it in. So they get really abbreviated uh, and and just really lay out application and application and application. Well, Peter, he he must have not thought he had as much space as he did because he does that here in 4 and then goes on um, to chapter 5. But we will see this almost abbreviated urgency with his message in these verses. And part of it could be, if you've been with us for this series, we know that the people that he's writing to, the churches that he's writing to, have been facing persecution. Uh, they have been facing theological persecution, physical persecution. Um, they have been facing so much and um, being dispersed and all this going on in, in that region at the time that Peter really, you feel his heart. You You feel his need to... Encourage them as much as He can, to give them as much as He can to endure, to, to last, to um, respond well in spite of what is going on around them. And so we, we get this, this burst of, of help today in our passage. It certainly would have been help for the people uh, that He wrote it to, and it is also certainly help for us today. With that being said, I do invite you to follow along with me As I read this morning, the word of the Lord for us today, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and I'll read to the 11th verse. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And the grass may wither and the flower may fall but the word of the Lord will stand forever. And just like the grass receives its nourishment from the water of the sky, so too will we, his people, receive his nourishment from his word today. Would you please bow with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we are much like the grass in that if you do not nourish us today, we will not be nourished. If you do not provide what we need for life, If you do not sustain us this day, this hour, we will not last. Oh, Lord, I pray for each and every one here and those joining us online that they would seek to live lives that last, lives that matter, lives of purpose, lives that fulfill your calling upon each and every one of us. We can learn that calling and we can learn that purpose and we can learn to live in that strength through your word. And so I pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would provide these things for us, O God. I pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. A lesson that my father taught us sons growing up, he's a land surveyor. And he was always very um, committed to teaching us land navigation, teaching us woodsmanship, and teaching us how to survive in the, the wilderness and he would often take us out and he would give us a, a surveyor's compass and a map and tell us to get to a destination. He'd give us a point, a, a place to get to, a, a goal. And he would have us use that compass and, and track our way through the woods. And um, he did this for even from a very young age. And uh, there was a lot of times that we didn't get there and we didn't make it. Um, we would be off. And um, the, the lesson that my father would, would always impress upon us as. Um, Land navigation at half a degree, a little bit, one degree, just a little bit off at the start across a mile, two miles, several miles can end you way off course. Can end you way off course. He loved this lesson and he loved teaching it to us. As a surveyor, he understood the importance of absolute precision when charting a course. If you don't, pay attention at the beginning, and then check yourself along the way, you stand no chance of getting to the destination. And while that is absolutely true in land navigation, it is also spiritually true of our lives. It is is spiritually true for us today that if we don't check our course, if we don't make sure that we're aiming at the right place, and that we're moving incrementally toward that goal, toward that destination, we can get off. We can veer out of place and we can find ourselves at the end when we think we're where we're supposed to be to be off by a great deal. We must ask ourselves as Christians, are we living with the end in mind? Are we living with the goal that, that at the end of our life, at the end of our journey, We have glorified God. We have served him as he has gifted us and as he has called us to. Have we loved others rightly? Have we used ourselves to our fullest ability in your work, in your school, in your interactions with others, with your neighbors, with your friends? Are you tracking according to God's plan for your life? And this is what's going on in, in Peter's letter. He, he's writing to the church, telling them, check yourselves, track, make sure, use these markers that we've been talking about all through this book to see that you're living holy lives. See that you're living lives that matter. So that when you get to the end, which remember, for many that Peter was writing to was death from persecution. So that when you get to that point and we look back you will see that you've lived a full life, a life that glorifies God and a life that shows His love to one another. This morning in our passage, and this is a bit unusual, um, but it is the case, there are at least six markers. There are at least six mile markers from our text to help us check our progress, to see how we're doing and getting to that destination. This morning, six points, a six-point sermon. I've not got to do this before, so I'm very excited. So would you please follow along with me as we talk about each of these markers to see that that we're aiming towards the right goal, God's glory. First, we're going to see that the best way to do this at the beginning, as we just said, is to look toward the end. Know that the end is at hand. We find this in verse 7. Secondly, we're going to see that we must be self-controlled and sober-minded. We find this in verse 8. Thirdly, also in verse 8, love one another. Love one another earnestly. Fourthly, we're told show hospitality. Show hospitality to one another. We find this in verse 9. Fifthly, use your gifts to serve one another. Verses 10 and 11. And then lastly, again, we, we look to that ultimate goal, we, we look to where we're headed, we look to our end, see God's glory as that ultimate destination. And so six mile markers, if you will, today to make sure that we're on track, that we're living a life that is pleasing to God, that we're living a holy life before Him. Would you please follow along with me in our text as we see each of these at hand? And we do begin, and it is appropriate to begin by viewing the end. Again, before you take that first step, before you set off on a course, you need to know where you're going. And Peter begins this passage, he begins this section by saying, the end of all things is at hand. He is telling the church, be ready. Now, this puts together a, a minor theological squabble, um, There are some scholars that would point to this text and go, Aha, see, the Bible's in error. Because Peter said the end of all things is at hand and you're still reading it today. So he made a mistake. It's not at hand because you're still here. And while I I find this almost comical, um, there are people who do this. So I want to dispel that quickly. I want to make sure that we're understanding that we can trust our sources, uh, namely the Bible... And there's two ways to read this um, and and, and be on track. One, if you look at the biblical narrative, if you look at the biblical story, um, several months ago we were in the book of Genesis and you, you read from the beginning that God created all things, he created mankind, and man fell into sin, and God's promise was that the seed of the woman would come to crush the seed of the serpent and you track through the biblical narrative and you read through all of the prophecies and everything that's promised. We've got Christ, the start of the church, and we're all the way down. If you really look at it from a, from a biblical perspective, we are living somewhere around Revelation 18. If, if you really want to put it as it tracks, and, and we could talk about the book of Revelation. There, there's some much to be said there. Um, But we're living somewhere around the last five chapters of the book of Revelation, biblically speaking. And wouldn't you say then that it's accurate to say the end of all things is at hand? We've covered biblically just about every mile marker, every moment that needs to be covered, except the end. We are close. We're on the final section. We're on the home stretch. And that's where we find ourselves from a narrative sake. We're so close to the final pages. And so when Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he means really all that's left is Jesus to come back, to make all things new, to cast down Satan, to bring in the final judgment, and then eternity. And so one way to see this is to see it in that way, to see it in that biblical sense, that we've checked nearly every box. And then there's another way to, to um, respond to this, and, and this one... I think it's even easier than that. When you're an eternal God, when you're an eternal God who has all of history in mind in a, in a, in a single moment, in a single instant, it all looks small. Um, C.S. Lewis was, was famous of saying this. We, we as humans, we, we look at time as a line. We talk about time lines. But when we speak about our God, God takes that line and Moves it to a point, and then there it is—all of history, all of reality, all of existence. We look at it as a line, and he turns it on its end and sees it as a dot. So when 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 God looks at this, the end is at hand. We we are right there. A thousand years is but a day to our God. And so I, I, I offer you this, not because it's insignificant. But just so you're aware that there are scholars, there are people that are trying their best to discredit God's word. They want to set you up from the beginning, in their opinion, rightly, so that you don't even follow the course. They want you to see that that at best, this is just a set of suggestions, some wise teachings, some uh, beneficial parables, some moral applications, but you shouldn't lay out your map by it. You you shouldn't use it as absolute, as as guaranteed truth. And and we could talk about critical study of scripture, and and, and we could do that um, and and should do that in, in other Settings. But I I just, I give you that even from the outset so you know, and, and hopefully you do, that by this point we're saying this can be trusted. When God says the end of all things is at hand, He means the end of all things is at hand. And at the end of the day, whether we understand it or not doesn't make it less true because God understands it. And so we start with the end in mind. And I just I give you all of that so that we can trust what's being said. So with that in mind, let, let's, let's apply this. Let's look at this and ask, what does that mean? And I love, I absolutely love what John Calvin says um, upon this section, asking what does the end of all things mean? Why did Peter write this? He says this, The apostle wrote that he might rouse the people from drowsiness, He reminds them that the end of all things was nigh, by which he intimates, we ought not sit still. We ought not sit still in this world from which we must soon remove. It is no wonder that the cares of this world overwhelm us and make us drowsy if the view of present things dazzles our eyes. For we promise almost all of us in eternity to ourselves in this world at least the end never comes to our mind. Calvin is saying that Peter writes this to shake us, to wake us up. Dear Christian, the end is at hand. Looking at that big perspective, zooming the lens out. Wake up. Wake up and see that the years are quick. Wake up and see that eternity is at hand. An eternity in God's presence or an eternity in God's judgment is at hand. Wake up. Don't get distracted. Don't let the little things of this life, which may seem like big things, but truly speaking, they are small. Don't waste your life. Live faithfully with what you have been given. Many places we could go in Scripture, the the book of Ecclesiastes, um, we could look at James. I love what James says in 4.14. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Peter is challenging the church, is challenging us to see it all, to look at the map, There's a definite start and there's a definite finish. We don't know the miles in between, but we know that each point is reality. And you're moving further from that start dot and closer to that finish dot each and every breath. And this has an impact on our lives, doesn't it? Doesn't that shape how we think? Doesn't that shape how we act? Doesn't that shape our decisions? Once we start thinking that way, once we we get that mindset that this is going to end that this is all coming to an end, that there is a, a, a finish line here. It really does shape us and change how we think and how we act. And so we begin the first mile marker, the first check mark is to consider the end and keep that in mind. And then as we march on down the course, Peter says, dear Christian, also be controlled, self-controlled and sober-minded. And he tacks on there a purpose. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And so first, let's think about what he's saying. Self-controlled and sober-minded. Think clearly. Think with rational thoughts. Think with a a head that is focused and attentive. What am I doing here? What is my purpose? How can I live a holy life? And then we ask ourselves, why? Because it affects how we pray. When we think clearly, when we have the big picture in mind, when we are in that space where we understand what is going on, our prayers are different. Our prayers are different we start praying in a way that says, God, what is your will? God, what do you want? We, we use the Lord's Prayer. We, we use it each and every service. And if you listen to the words that we offer there, Lord, give me what I need. Lord, protect me from evil. Keep sin out of my life. Help me forgive others as I myself forgiven your kingdom come your will be done that prayer and the reason we use it as we're commanded in scripture is that it shapes how we live our lives when you have the big picture and you're clear-minded and you're sober in thought it shapes how you live your life It, it becomes less the the prayers of our youth and and i completely understand and I'm not ridiculing us for it, but Lord, help me ace this test. Lord, help me make it through PE today. Lord, help this person like me. Help, we, we have this childlike way of praying in our youth. Help me get this promotion. Help me do this. Help me do that. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to ask those things of God. But as we grow in our lives and grow in our walk with the Lord, those prayers become, Lord, what do you want for me who do you want me to be with? What job do you want me to have? Where do you want me to live? What would bring you the most glory? See how the the, the shift happens over time as we study God's word and we, we apply it over and over to our lives? And we, we find case study after case study in the Bible of when this goes wrong. Israel itself is a perfect example of this. You've got the... the um, Story of the Exodus, uh, God saving them from Egypt. and You get this beautiful prayer from Moses in Exodus 15, um, right after the Red Sea, this, this song of praise, Dear God, you have saved us. We are clearly praising you for what you have done. We had our backs against a sea and against an army. We would not survive without your mighty hand and your salvation. So they're clearly thinking, they're sober-minded, they're clear in thought. And then if you zoom forward just just a few chapters um, to, I believe it's Exodus 32, we get a very different Israel. Moses is up on the mountain, he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God, the Israelites are bored and they look to Aaron and next thing you know there's a golden calf. I don't know how it got there, We just the gold appeared and it got thrown in the fire and now there's a calf and we're worshiping it. They lost sight of the big picture. They lost sight of the fact that their leaders on a mountain talking to God, getting the commandments. They lost sight of the fact that God had delivered them, brought them out of Egypt, saved them from slavery, rescued them, and, and said, You are my people, and I've called you for a purpose. They lost sight. They got off course. Their, their mind had shifted, and now they're, they're at the point of utter idolatry. That they're at the point that they're going to be called stiff-necked people, which is actually, it's a pretty good um, rebuke from God because he's calling them cow-like. You made a golden calf, and, and you were being like a calf, cow-like, stiff-necked. Just, just same people, same situation, just several chapters later, they got off because they lost focus on what truly mattered. But we must not be that way, dear Christian. You must be sober minded. You must be clear in thought. You must let your prayer be shaped by a desire for God's will and not your own. And just as a a bit of an aside, something beautiful happens when we learn to pray that way. Something beautiful happens to our life because God then starts to use our prayer to want what He wants, to want His goals and his desires, and his dreams, to the point that we start praying, and it's like it says in Scripture, I asked and you gave it to me. We, we shift again. We get put back on course. And so we're co- told to have the end in mind. We're told to be clear-headed and sober-minded. And then we're also told to love one another. We're told another mile marker, another way we can check our own hearts as we're going in this path of life is how we love one another. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly because, or since, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, he's specifically talking about those within the household of faith here. He's saying, dear Christian, you must love your fellow Christians. You must care for your fellow Christians. Bear one another's burdens. And remember the setting he's finding himself in. Friends family members, co-workers are dying, are losing their lives. Families without husbands, without wives, people without jobs, people without the means to to provide their physical nourishment are in this community, are in this together. And he's saying, now, dear Christian, dear church, you've got to care for them. You've got to love one another. Jesus himself. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is just like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we do need to think just for a second about that that tag-only end. Um, Peter does say something interesting here. Love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sin. Now, we don't want to conclude, and it would be theologically wrong to say, make sure to love as many people as you can to have as much of your sin covered as you can. As if there's this exchange that can take place by you loving someone, you get a sin erased. That's not what's going on here. The only way your sin is erased is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Let's be very clear. The only way your sin is forgiven is it's paid for, and it's paid for by Jesus. And so that's not what Peter is saying. He's he's not saying that there's this exchange program where the more you love, the less sin you end up with. No, but he is saying something really profound here. What Peter is saying is when you love someone, especially when you love someone who's wronged you, when you love someone who has sinned against you, you stop it from growing. When you decide to love someone who has acted wrongly against you, who has sinned against you and and done something against you and against God, and and you say, no, I'm going to love you in spite of this, you put a marker there. You put a block there. It's, it's, it's much like for many of you gardeners, when you put up a wall or you, you um, draw like a, a line with your rocks or your mulch or whatever, you're saying this stops here and I'm not going to let it spread. That's what loving other people does. It stops the chance of sin because what doesn't happen then is you then retaliate and you go, well, you've sinned against me. I'm going to get you back. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to let you know how I felt about that. I'm going to make sure that what you did to me gets repaid. No, see, that doesn't happen. Sin stops. Sin stops. Love covers a multitude of sin when we go, no, I'm not going to let it grow. It's not growing past here And remember, he's very narrowly here talking about people in the church. We're we're not talking about outsiders that sin against us. We're not talking about people outside the church that's persecuting them. He's talking about people in their household. He's talking about their fellow believers, those that they saw on a weekly basis. He's saying, you Christians have got to demonstrate that this is not going to happen. That we're going to love, we're going to forgive, we're going to serve one another we must practice humility it's so easy to get caught up isn't it especially those of us that have siblings the little arguments the little aggravations and remember dear Christian it, it, it helps so much to go back to the beginning we've got a goal we've got a place we're headed we've got a destination that we're aiming for eternity eternity God's presence, absolute holiness. And again, when we put that as the right destination, doesn't that make it easier to not want to veer when an inconvenience comes, when someone sins against us in a minor way, when someone makes our life miserable or they do the wrong thing or they say the wrong thing? Instead of turning down that road, instead of going off course and getting on this big detour and side quest to have to deal with all that mess, we go, no, I'm going to show love. I'm going to stay on the course. It will change our lives, dear Christian. It will change our relationships. It will change our interactions when we get in the habit of when someone sins against you, when they hurt your feelings, when they, when they make life hard, and you go, no, I'm going to love, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to stop it because I'm heading that way and you're not going to slow me down. In fact, come with me. Come with me. We know that is the case Because Peter then says, show hospitality to one another. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The best way you can love, the best way that you can cover a multitude of sin is by being hospitable. Excuse me, when that person hurts your feelings, when that person gets you down, when they're having a bad day and they lash out, and we say, you know, I'm going to choose to love you, bring them along, bring them with you hey, I'm going this way. I'm pursuing God, and I want you to be a part of that. I want you to come with me. I want to welcome you into my life. And, and when I was looking at this, this point, and I was looking at how do you explain hospitality, and, and I really was trying to dig into you know, how to teach you about how to be hospitable, and I've spent the last two weeks at home sick, and I got phone calls, and I got meals brought over, and I got people that shoveled my driveway, and I got people checking on my wife. The only thing I really want to say to you, church, about hospitality this morning is thank you. You, you as a church, you are uniquely gifted in the gift of hospitality. And I just, I want to thank you from, from the Lord. I, I really do. You all are so quick with reaching out to one another and making that phone call and, and, and checking on one another and seeing how they're doing. I know it in my own life and I know many of you know it in your own as well. This, this church really was planted from groups of people from Lee Summit that were getting together regularly to pray for God to raise a church in Lee Summit. You are the consequence of this point. This, this mile marker, you are so good at this You do this so well, letting people in, inviting them over, opening your lives to them. And so, all I can say on one hand is thank you as one who has been the recipient of it, but also just know how powerful that is. Know how beneficial that is for the kingdom of God because the the world doesn't care. The, the the world doesn't care about each other. The world doesn't care about how one another's doing. I, I I've been reading some jokes recently about the, the, the way that HR works in America versus in other countries, and it would talk about this one guy. He he got in a car accident on his way to work, and he was begging with his boss the chance to work extra hours to make up for the time that he missed. And it's like that's how it works in an American system because they don't care. You're just you're a way to get something out of them. And then in other countries, it talked about how much you could have time off and opportunity to heal and get better because you matter. Well, whether that's true or not in our workforce, it most certainly should be true in the church. It most certainly should be true in our lives that that we are looking out and looking for opportunities and ways to say, are you okay? Because it will make all of the difference in the world. And another, again, Another mile marker, and Peter's really good in this passage of just continuing to zoom in, a way that you can do this specifically, that you can be hospitable, is by using your gifts, by using your gifts, the way God made you and how he made you and the way he wired you for each other. Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And hear that and be encouraged. It does not say, for those of you that have been gifted, use your gifts. It says, "As each of you have been gifted by God, by His grace, use it. You have been gifted by God. You, and with your personality and your style, and your thought processes, and your talents, and your desires, and your dreams, and your hopes, you have been uniquely created by God to bring glory to himself and to serve one another. And that looks different from person to person. That looks different for each of you. For, for some of you, it is the ability to pick up that phone call, pick up that phone and call for for some of you, it is making a meal. For some of you, it is serving in the nursery. It is serving our Sunday schools. It's helping one another. It's organizing a cleanup day. It's so many ways, unique ways. And we often do a disservice in this when we, we think about God's gifting and, and we think, You know, I'm not that great at praying in public, or I'm not that equipped to be a teacher, or maybe I'm not called to be in the pulpit, or maybe I'm not called to be an elder or a deacon. We can get really bummed out when we start thinking that I don't have one of those big gifts. And the reality of it is being that person that says hey to the visitors that come, you are one of the most important people in this church. Being able to remember birthdays and anniversaries, one, I don't know how you do it, but um, you're one of the most important people in this church. The phone calls, the handshake, the quiet prayer at home for someone else, that's God's gifting on your life and that's you using it for his glory. And never, never, never make little of yourself or of how God can use you for his kingdom. You, you, you do not even understand, and none of us do, the, the impact that those little things can have for the kingdom. Now, he does say as one who speaks, speaking oracles of God, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, but that's not excluding the other gifts. He's just using these as examples to use what you've been given by the strength that God supplies. I pray that you are encouraged, dear Christian. And again, we we put this back in the context of we've got people that are being killed for their faith. We've got people that are being murdered for their faith, that are being cast out of their homes, displaced from their work, separated from their families. And Peter is saying to them, he's saying to the church unto death, unto the end, use whatever you've been given well. I think of Paul and the Philippian jailer. Paul showing mercy to the person that's seeing about his death ends up converting him, his whole household, by humbling himself to this jailer. No, we're not, we didn't run away. You don't have to kill yourself. In fact, please don't. You're coming to my house. You're going to tell them what you know today. That little act, just a little kindness, God's mercy changes lives. It 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 changes lives, and again, if if we put this all together, if we look at this as a roadmap, we start by having a right mindset of the end. Then we start using what we have been given. We we with a clear and sober mind. We love one another through the ways that God's given us, and then we get to the end. We get to the final dot, verse eleven. God's glory is the ultimate goal. It's the destination. It's where we're headed. It's it's what we should place as that that point on the map. Here's what we want. Peter concludes, it, and I love the beauty of this. In order that in everything, all of this, everything that's been said, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All of it. Our clear thoughts, our clear prayers. Loving one another, forgiving one another, using our gifts for one another, hospitality with one another, all of that that Jesus Christ may be glorified. And when that is the destination, when that's our when that's our course correction, when that's our goal, and that's how we're checking ourselves, asking, Am I doing it right? Then again, everything changes. You losing that job ends up being an opportunity to bless God god in a new way you not getting that promotion you getting that flat tire them being out of what you needed at the grocery store all of these things all of these minor moments all of these things across your life start to become a bigger picture than you can imagine because you're going to say god's glory first god's glory first and I, I hope we're blessed with it, and I don't know that we will, so I can't promise it to you. But I hope, when we get to heaven, and we can sit down with God, and He replays our life before us, I hope that we get to see just a taste, just just the that that red light that caught you, that meeting that you missed, that inconvenience, that thing that happened. All I want to just just get a taste of those little annoying things that we go all oh, my life ruined. and this is the worst thing ever, and then God goes, and this is where I blessed myself, and or I glorified myself and blessed you because of that. Here's where I protected you from this. Here's where you didn't get hit with, with a car because of that. And just, I would love to see, and I, I do pray that, that I would get the chance to see that. But even if I don't, even if I don't, even if that's not part of God's plan, know that it is part of God's plan. And when we choose to live a life that says God's glory is the ultimate goal through Jesus Christ, Why? Because Jesus lived, died, and rose again to forgive us of our sin, to make us right before God. He takes everything in our lives and uses it to bless us and to glorify himself. And that, my my dear Christian, is, is a wonderful why. Why do I live as a Christian? Why do I hold to this book? Why do I try so hard to honor him and to live that holy life that he calls us to in that first chapter? Why do I go through so much suffering? And why do I go through hardship? And why do I I live this way even when it costs me so much? In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Which, by the way, as I, I said earlier, and don't hold it too tightly, but as I said earlier, we're really living in the last five chapters of the book of Revelation. If, if you want to be encouraged this week, go read those last five chapters. God wins, by the way. If, you, if you've not read to the end of the book, God wins. He's already won. We are, we are serving a victorious God in a victorious story awaiting the, the final rewards of what has taken place. And that's the path we're on today. You are on it, and it is guaranteed, it is fixed, it is certain. If you were a child of God, you will get to the end. We're promised by the perseverance of the saints that he will see us through. And by saying that this is how we're going to live our life, we will live lives that matter, that have purpose, and that have joy. Oh, that you would have joy in your life today. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Oh, how I want this for my own life. I I pray your words over my life, Lord. Would would this be who I am? Would this be how I live and how I love others? Would this be how I make decisions for my family, for our church? Lord, would this be how we would all think about things, Lord? When things go well, when things don't, would we look at it all the way zoomed out saying, God, God, how are you glorified in this? Help me to love. Help me to forgive. Help me to be hospitable. Help me to serve using my gifts. Would we offer that as a prayer each and every day? As the psalmist often do, search me and know me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, keep us on this path. Help us to place your glory above everything else. Help us to seek you in all that we say and all that we do. And come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.